As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here today with Al Melchior, and later today we'll be joined by Corey Brock of the Athletic. Corey covers the Seattle Mariners, who with one one combination of moves became a much more interesting team in a matter of days. So we'll talk about the arrival of Jared Kelnick and Logan Gilbert and a few other storylines early on with the Mariners. Uh, but Al, we're going to start today by digging into some leaderboards. We do this from time to time on Fantasy Baseball in 15. And with that being a 15-minute news show, we don't always get as far into the leaderboards as we might like. So I figured this would be a good opportunity for us to take more of a deep dive. And you've done some research in the past. You wrote a piece, I think a couple years ago now, but over at Fangraphs, looking at what StatCast numbers correlate best with different pitching aspects and different pitching stats. So we're looking for all sorts of different things when we dig into these leaderboards and, and not everything means something, but we're kind of looking for new ways to measure skills. And one way to do that is to take the average exit velocity on fly balls and line drives, which a lot of times we're focused on hitters when we look at that leaderboard and to flip it over to pitching and look and see you know, which pitchers are doing a good job avoiding hard contact in the air and which pitchers are struggling to avoid hard contact in the air. So we're going to pull on some threads and and see just what we find with some of the pitchers who are on both ends of the leaderboard there. Uh, you want to start negative or you want to start positive today? Well, actually, can we start with a little bit of context uh, just about the research and stuff? Because I, you know, I think if we just dig right into the leaderboards. Uh, I think it's tempting to just kind of, you know, toss it off and, and be like, well, okay, it's, you know, what does this really tell us? So, you know, I found some pretty interesting stuff with, with the help of Alex Chamberlain when uh, I did this research. Uh, and like you said, just a little over two years ago, which, you know, initially I was looking, going back at this, looking back at this column, which I hadn't done in a long time, as looking at data from 2015 to 2018. And I thought, well, in a way, you know, even though it seems a little old, this, this might be more reliable than some 
more recent research because it doesn't include the rabbit ball year and it doesn't include last year. So in, in a way I feel pretty comfortable looking at these, uh, looking at these results. Yeah, absolutely. So as you started to dig in, did you find anything that really surprised you in the correlations? Uh, I think the biggest surprise was just how, how many of these stack cast metrics, uh, allow us to uh, make make predictions about uh, home run to fly ball ratio uh, and and if you might say well why you know why not just look at home run to fly ball ratio well I think the second most interesting or surprising thing that came out of it is that year to year home run to, home run to fly ball ratio is really unreliable in fact of of the whole panel of variables that we looked at that had the worst year to year correlation. So if you want to know what somebody's home run fly ball, home run to fly ball ratio is likely to be in a given year, look at some of these stat cast metrics, uh, including the one we're going to talk about today, the average exit velocity on fly balls and liners, but also things like barrel rate and average fly ball distance um, not only correlate with home run to fly ball ratio, but also correlate pretty well from, from year to year. So, uh, you know, those were, I think, the biggest takeaways. Yeah, I don't know if anybody would dispute that avoiding barrels and avoiding hard contact is a skill but I think where we would all probably need a little help is understanding how much information how much data do we need to believe that there's truly a problem right this is always something we're talking about in April and May like is what we're seeing more real than what we've seen in the past is it equally valuable to what we've seen in the past where do we draw those lines how do we decide how much the numbers so far matter and starting to dig into an example. I mean, I think of a guy like Kenta Maeda, who is usually at the good end of this list, usually has a low average exit velocity on fly balls and line drives. He has the third highest average exit velocity on fly balls and line drives so far in 2021. Anybody who has Kenta Maeda on their teams this year knows that things have not been going well when you see such a, a stark contrast like that, does it just push you into the profile and get you to start looking at some other things before you draw any conclusions? Like, what's the next step when you see a big swing from one end of the board to the other like this? Yeah, no, that's exactly it, DVR. Uh, at this point, I don't think we can draw conclusions, but it's a red flag that literally warns you of something that might be going wrong under the hood. So, uh, yeah, in the case of Maeda, you know, look and see, okay, what's going on with velocity? And of course, we know from at least a couple of weeks back that the velocity had been down. It did rebound somewhat. So you look at that, you look at the pitch mix, you look at uh, like a pitch leader Borg, like again, Alex Chamberlain uh, has has available out there or like some of the ones that are available on Fangraph, some of the pitch-by-pitch uh, pitch breakdown data that's available there and look and see, you know, is a particular pitch um, more susceptible to home runs this year, more susceptible to extra base hits. So that, that data is out there. So yeah, I would take a look at that. And given that we're taking a relatively small sample, you know, not even quite a quarter of the season yet. And then we're breaking that down into individual pitches. I, I don't think you can draw a whole lot of conclusions at this point, but at least it, it kind of, it puts that potential problem on the radar for you and you can revisit it next week. And again, the week after that. And as we start to get more and more data, you can, uh, you know, make, make a better decision. And in the meantime, you know, I certainly, in fact, we talked about this, I think it was on fantasy baseball 15 that I did bench 
Maeda for that two-start week when he improved a little bit. So uh, it's enough of a warning sign to me that I will take some short-term action. What's interesting to me with Maeda, when I look at the breakdown of what he's doing pitch by pitch, he's throwing his slider more than ever. I think he's increased his slider usage every year since 2017. At a certain point, you can go too far. A pitch becomes a little less effective if you throw it too much. I don't know if going from 38% last year to 42% this year is some kind of magic threshold that actually causes things to completely unravel. That seems a bit far-fetched to me. Uh, I would look at the fact that you know, the velo is the same. The spin's actually the same. Uh, he's getting a little less extension now, but everything at a quick glance looks really similar. So I don't know if the slider is necessarily as broken as the results on that pitch would lead us to believe. But it's everything across the board, right? The splitter hasn't been as effective as it was in the past, and his four-seamer has been getting crushed as well. Uh, we're just not seeing Kentameda miss bats. It's not like he's striking guys out at typical rates, but then when he, when hitters make contact, they're doing more damage. It's just more contact and more damage, which is a horrible combination. Exactly. And and this is why I, I think that this is valuable information to have to not only look at the whiff rate, what you, which you referenced, but look at the quality of the contact because, um, you know, these are all kind of extreme changes in Maeda's profile. So even if we don't dig any deeper and find out exactly what the problem is, the fact that he is allowing more contact and then he's he's really gone literally from one extreme to the other that Maeda in the previous four seasons 2017 to 2020 he ranked 14th out of 205 pitchers in this metric average exit velocity allowed on flat on fastballs and line drives so he went from being one of the very very best over an extended period of time to in a short period of time being one of the absolute worst in this metric so you put all that together, and even if you don't understand the reasons why, to me, that even if the results were good in that two-start week, uh, until we see, see some changes in the underlying metrics, I'm going to be really reticent about starting my eight. I'm really going to pick my spots. Yeah, if you look at the body of work for him, mostly with the Dodgers, we all know at this point, most years by September, they'd flip him into a relief rule and they would taper off his workload. I think injuries also slowed him down earlier during his time there, too. So we don't have massive workloads year over year where he's put up ratios anywhere near what he did in the shortened season. I mean, a 270 ERA and a .75 whip, no matter how much you like Kenta Maeda, you are not projecting him for anything close to that over a full season in 2021. I imagine most people were drafting him expecting a mid-threes ERA and probably a 110 sort of whip, which is a little better than his career number so far. He's 381 and 113 in ERA and whip for his career and just under 700 big league innings. All of the projection systems, though, the public-facing projections over at Fangraphs are pointing to ratios worse than his career marks. They're all over four with the ERA, and they're between 1.23 and 1.25 with the whip. Uh, they are projecting strikeouts to come back to a level kind of splitting the difference between the shortened season and what we've seen so far. Do you think this is a case where the projections are sort of in line with the expectations that you would have for Maeda the rest of the way? Because those ratios come from a guy that, as you said, maybe you, you don't just start all the time. Like That's a guy that's a little bit more borderline. There are some spots where you're not necessarily going to use him if you think he's a guy who's going to pitch to those ratios. Yeah, I mean, to just 
kind of answer a, a slightly different question. Those projections are in line with how I will treat him, in, at least in the short term. If that's what he's going to do going forward, I don't know. Because, again, I don't understand the dynamics of what's going on behind these really extreme changes in his profile. So he could, you know, after a little bit more than a month, I mean, he could fix it and revert back and be much better than that projection. Or this could just be who he is in 2021 and he'll be much worse. I mean, that's what projection systems do is they take the the safe route down the middle. Uh, and that could be the outcome as well. But, you know, given that I don't know which, which outcome we're going to have, I will treat him as if that projection is going to be an accurate prediction going forward. Let's talk about a few other players that appeared high on this list. Marco Gonzalez actually leads the league in a bad way, 97.1 miles per hour on fly balls and line drives. Zach Plesak up there at number two at 96.6. Plesak is someone that I did not have on any teams. I think I had one league where he fell a bit, and I thought about drafting him, and finally somebody else took him, so I didn't have to. I didn't think he'd crash quite this hard in terms of the K rate. I thought some of the gains we saw last year would hold, but he's really kind of pushed his way back into the 2019 skills. And the key difference so far is that he's cut home runs, right? Lower home run Mm -hmm. rate, better ratios, but is he really a control first sort of pitcher as opposed to the guy that we saw pushing that 27% K rate last year? Uh, that's what I'm counting on, but sort of similar to what I was saying about Maeda, that you've got a, a really big range of uh, possible outcomes here, conceivable outcomes. So I, you know, I don't really have a strong belief that he's one thing or the other because we've kind of seen these different versions in equal parts. So uh, to me, he's just a wild card. And the thing is that the I don't feel like the upside is great enough to justify the risk. I think the hard thing here, though, is that the home run rate's down while that average exit velocity is really high on fly balls and line drives. That sort of uh, sort of confuses me in some ways. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. But he's getting a ton of ground balls, a 55.4% ground ball rate so far this season, a big shift from where he's been in each of the last two seasons. Well, yeah, and that's a really important detail, too. we got to put these numbers in context because uh, another player on this list uh, is Adrian Hauser. Um, just a few spots down. And I, that that stat doesn't alarm me. And actually, Hauser's teammate, Brett Anderson, perennially is in this neighborhood of the rankings. Just gives up a lot of hard contact on flies, but doesn't really give up that many flies. So um, it doesn't really worry me at all with Brett Anderson, and it doesn't really worry me with Adrian Hauser. And I guess it probably shouldn't worry me with Zach Plezak either. It's just I'm just less certain what kind of pitcher Plezak is on the whole. Yeah, I mean, so long as we believe that he's going to keep getting ground balls at that rate, I think you'd be right to say, yeah, let's let's not worry too much about this because his approach is to get hitters to hit the ball on the ground at an elevated clip. It's also weird to me, Shane Bieber is pretty high on this leaderboard, but it seems like that's normal for him. And I remember Alex Chamberlain had a presentation at PitchCon, I think this would have been last spring, spring of 2020, and for a guy that is as good as Shane Bieber is, he does allow uh, kind of an alarming amount of hard contact. What do you make of that? And is it just something that we have to accept as part of a, a profile where a lot of other things go exceptionally well? 
that's exactly right. I think we have to accept that. Um, I don't think we can at this point look at it as a fluke. Um, On that larger leaderboard that I was looking at, 2017 to 2020, uh, Bieber was very, very close to the the high end in terms of high being, you know, a high average exit velocity, uh, 93.5 miles an hour uh, going back to, well, going back to the beginning of his career. And that puts him in the, uh, uh, just outside the top 10% in a bad way, but he misses a lot of bats. So it's, you know, kind of a different version of what we were saying about like with Adrian Hauser that, um, you know, Bieber allows relatively little contact. So if the contact he allows is really hard, it's, it's not as damaging as if, um, you know, compared to somebody like Kenta Maeda or Marco Gonzalez, uh, but, you know, and, and I got, kind of got burned over rating this stat for Bieber because I was pretty vocal about being much lower on him than others were going into 2020. And that obviously worked out really poorly for me. So I think, again, you know, when you're looking at ground ball pitchers or pitchers who are really good at getting whiffs, it's not too alarming. I thought it was easy to be skeptical at the inflated price about Bieber because I thought that was a well-reasoned argument. So I was also surprised that last season played out the way that it did. And really, he's picked up right where he left off so far here in 2021. Uh, Let's go to the other end of the leaderboard because logically, one of my first thoughts here is if you don't throw hard, your average exit velocity on flies and liners will probably skew a bit lower and doesn't throw hard applies to Ryan Yarbrough, who is pretty consistently very good in this metric. Yeah, I mean, he's elite. He's he's topped the leaderboard uh, in previous years. Uh, he's, uh, I think I want to say seventh in that pool of 205 since 2017. Uh, you know, he's, he's certainly, he's consistently elite in this uh, regard. And uh, actually, I underrated him. He is second uh, only to... Brent Suter, and if I had um, you know made it uh, fewer bad or rather more batted balls, he'd be at the top of this list uh, going back to 2017. So, yeah, Yarbrough. This is this is one of the reasons why I really like him because I think you can't have this skill and nothing else and have it really help you that much. But the fact that Yarbrough also gets so many chases on out of zone pitches, which keeps his um, keeps his walk rate and his WHIP really low, that the fact that he's also a pretty good bet to avoid home runs because of this skill, even as a mediocre strikeout pitcher, I, I just like him a lot. Yeah, and he's got a teammate, Josh Fleming, who throws a little bit harder than he does, who also lives in the very good place on this leaderboard. I think the key here is, like you said, it can't just be this skill and nothing else. There has to be some sort of above average command, I think would be something I'd be looking for to pair with the ability to induce weak contact, right? If you if you're getting if you're getting by with mediocre command and weak contact, it's just a matter of time before hitters start to punish those mistakes and that hard contact starts to tick up. At least that's my expectation for a profile like that. But Josh Fleming, I think because the because the Rays have had success with Yarbrough, it makes me more willing to Open my mind to the possibility that Josh Fleming can also find a way to exceed our expectations as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation because uh, I've also noticed in the last few years that I've been tracking this that the Mets always have a cluster of guys at the good end of this leaderboard. 
Uh, Noah Syndergaard, uh, when he's pitching, uh, always one of the top uh, pitchers. Zach Wheeler's right there. And in fact, again, looking at the leaderboard going uh, from 2017 to 2020, Syndergaard's third, right behind Yarbrough. Wheeler is sixth. DeGrom is eighth. Seems like maybe more than a coincidence. So maybe the the Rays have uh, something like that going on, going on as well. Charlie Morton has ranked very high, and you know for the bulk of that time period, he was a Ray. So um, interesting theory, yeah. Kind of littered around the top ten, top twelve in a good way on this list. I mentioned Yarbrough and Fleming, not big velocity guys. Uh, Zach Greinke at this stage of his career obviously doesn't throw very hard. Wade Miley, Dylan Bundy, not a lot of premium velocity in that group. But I was surprised to see Brandon Woodruff on this list just because from a skill standpoint, he does not have the same stuff as the other pitchers. Now, he's not always in this range. I look back at last season, I think he was 35th coming down from the high end. So a pretty big transformation so far from him and not necessarily a case where I'm saying this is a skill he owns now. But I was just surprised because, again, we're talking about a guy that can touch triple digits with his fastball, and when hitters do make contact and put the ball in the air, you would assume that they would hit the ball pretty hard. Yeah, when, and I got to say, I, I disagree with that assessment. I think Woodruff does own this skill, which just makes him you know, such a, a great bet to be an elite pitcher because, like you said, he's got the great stuff. He misses bats. And, uh, again, look at this leaderboard from 2017 forward. Seventh, DVR, seventh out of 205. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah, interesting. So. Yeah, that longer that longer window <laughs> makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, 2020 yeah. especially, it's it's only a few starts longer than what we've got for 2021. So, that would tell me there's a pretty significant amount of variance from month to month or even from a, a partial season. You know, if you look at the season, it slides into thirds or halves, you might see a player move around quite a bit. But that multi-year track record is probably the better way to establish whether or not this is truly a skill a pitcher has. Yeah, and that's why again, kind of going back to one of the earlier things we talked about here, that you know, after this little portion of the season, if you know you've got somebody who's uh, out of sync with where they usually rank, and and not not in the Maeda sense, like from literally one end to the other, but you know, they're middle of the pack when they're usually really good or really bad. There's there's time for an adjustment, and Woodruff has been extremely good in this regard. So. Uh, you know, if he were to have a bad month or so, I wouldn't worry worry about it. It's interesting, too, because for a guy that pitches half his games in a park that boosts up home runs, he's maintained pretty good home run rates most years. I think last year was the worst of his career, 1.10 homers per nine, but for his career, 0.90. I mean, that's perfectly fine, especially when you account for Miller Park, now American Family Field, and what that tends to do to pitchers over time. Man, looking at Woodruff's page, too, I haven't looked at it in a while. K-rate has gone up every single year since he debuted. He's at 33.2% right now, and he's run a 6% range walk rate three years running. So truly like has reached that ace sort of level, and probably because of Corbin Burns' fast start this season, was getting overshadowed by a guy in his own rotation. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't know how how uh, valuable advice this might be, but uh, you know, with that uh, overshadowing, you know, maybe it's a good time to see who's got him in your league. Is there anybody at the, the low end of the range here that stands out to you as a possible buy low, maybe someone who's done this well for a few years, but has been unlucky to this point in the season or just hasn't had everything clicked just yet. Do you see, I mean, Bundy, who I mentioned before, the ratios aren't great right now, but 
he looks like the same guy he was in the shortened season. So do you take a chance on Bundy in a trade right now? Yeah, I think that's a great call. Uh, you know, given that he's got this part of his game, uh, you know, working for him. Uh, I like that. And, uh, you know, fortunately, the two names I have asterisked in that part of the, the list uh, that, that we're reading off here, uh, Carlos Rodon and Wade Miley, of course, they've exceeded everybody's expectations so far. Uh, but these are pitchers that have been near the top of the rankings for several years. So, um, you know, Yarborough, Woodruff, Rodon, uh, Miley, and Maeda, those are the pitchers that we're talking about here who have uh, you know, consistently been in the top uh, 5, 10, 15 percent uh, over the, the course of several years. So th- and this is why uh, on I think it was the last episode, I went on a little bit of a Wade Miley rant because I felt like people weren't respecting his achievement of the no hitter. And this is this is part of what's made him successful more so in a real baseball way than a fantasy way over the last several years is his ability to avoid hard con- contact and keep the ball in the park. So. Uh, I know it's not really an answer to your question, unless you have a, a Miley skeptic in your league and they may think they're selling high and maybe they're not selling as high as they think. I mean, I think a lot of people still look at the traditional skills, the things that make up FIP and lean pretty heavily on that in their analysis. And the key thing there, if you don't strike a ton of guys out, that's always going to bring a little bit of skepticism in the eyes of most fantasy managers. So I, I would say in, more cases than not, whoever has Wade Miley in your league is probably willing to move him for maybe less than he's projected to bring you for the rest of the season. Because I would agree that multi-year track record, even prior to seeing that he's been low as 15% for multiple years running, that doesn't surprise me, having seen a lot of him. Again, Woodruff, I was a little surprised by, just because I looked back only at one year's worth of data prior to recording today. And having watched him a lot, just figured, yeah, if he misses up occasionally, he's going to get hit as hard as any other pitcher. But it's really interesting to see that he has that longer track record as well. You know, I do want to talk about one other pitcher because I, I didn't really answer your question. Uh, but I've always liked Jordan Montgomery, and part of the reason that I've liked him, I, part of it is he's, he's good at the swing and miss, but uh, he's always been really good on this particular leaderboard. And... Uh, I feel like he's he's gone a bit under the radar so far this season. Um, you know, not always going really deep into starts, but um, this he he's given up more barrels than he usually does. But he's been you know really pretty consistent in in avoiding that barrel. So he's he's established a level for himself, and I think he'll get back there. And you know, once you add that to the other skills that he's showing this year, I I think there's some real potential for him to surprise people. The let the latter three-fourths of the season yeah still plenty of time to make up ground that's why looking for some buy lows now it's, we're kind of in that sweet spot where teams are starting to get the itch to make moves to address their weaknesses and to possibly trade players away who are off to slow starts they may be ready to move on so i think this is a great window now until about the end of may especially it's a great time to make some moves based on what we've seen through you know, seven starts in the case of most starting pitchers Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. All right, now it's time for us to be joined by our guest for today's show. He is Corey Brock from The Athletic. Corey covers the Mariners, who I mentioned up top have become a lot more interesting in the last couple of days. And I think Corey has become a lot more popular at the end of this week as a result. Corey, thanks for making some time for us today. Oh, it was pretty popular already, Derek. But um, yeah, I guess at this point, I'll just take anything I can get. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're popular here for sure. We'd love you having you on this show. And, so, And that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with the big news. Jared Kelnick is up, and I wrote about this for a prospect column that went up on the site overnight. Uh, managing expectations for any first-time big leaguer is necessary, and I was looking at the projections from the BAT, one of the projection systems over at Fangraphs, and it has a 235, 298, 418 slash line, 15 homers, and 6 steals the rest of the way for Jared Kelnick, which some people might say that slash line seems a little light, I think it's just how it works for a player that young coming to the big leagues for the first for the first time. He's only going to be 22 in July, so is it fair to temper expectations to a level like that? Even though we're talking about a guy in Kelnick who we all think could wildly exceed them, it's completely fair. However, uh, try telling the fan base this who has been waiting for this guy to arrive now for a couple years and I think this is one of the pitfalls of when you bring young guys up to the big leagues um, prospects guys who are highly touted um, I wrote about this the other day when I covered the Padres now we're talking about a, a different level of a player I remember Kevin Towers uh, God bless his soul he uh, he talked about when they were going to bring up Chase Headley and one of the things they wanted to do they wanted to bring him up when the team was playing well or reasonably well right and also to and i i will always remember this guys he said so he's not viewed as a savior and i think that's pretty important um now kelnick is a far different prospect than chase headley but i think the point stands that uh, there's going to be an immense amount of expectations from the fan base that this guy is going to need to hit the ground running right away. And I don't think that's fair to the player. So I think the beauty is now we have five or so months to get a look at Jared Kelnick, get a look at Logan Gilbert. Um, we'll see where it all shakes out at the end. But, um, I, you know, it's time. It's it's time. He has almost 800 plate appearances in the minor leagues. Um, it, it's time to see what he could do. It's time for this rebuild to get moving again. And it starts with these two guys. So, well, uh, Corey, let's look at the the other side of this from a fantasy perspective. Um, well, and from a Mariners perspective. So uh, they've already sent uh, Taylor Trammell to Tacoma. We've already seen Sam Haggerty's playing time sort of uh, diminish. Uh, and so I'm kind of wondering who else might lose uh, some, some prominence in their plans uh, going forward. Uh, it looks like Dylan Moore might be that player. So should we be concerned if we're, you know, we've been waiting for the turnaround and waiting for him to hit for average and, and more power has, has the window shut for him now? Not completely shut. And, you know, they still like more of the player, especially 
Um, you know, guys, I think we talked about those those monster hard hit rates that he had last year um, in a small sample size that just haven't shown up this year. I think his swing decisions have been pretty good. But ultimately, you know, I don't know if he's an everyday big league player moving forward. But I think the biggest thing he offers the Mariners is his versatility and that you can move him around. Uh, he can get some playing time at a few different spots. But, yeah, he might be someone who feels the squeeze. Here now that uh, Kelnick's up, you already mentioned Sam Haggerty, another nice bench piece uh, who you could run out. And I think it's very important that these teams, um, and I think the Mariners are doing a good job of this, are um, bench construction, how you sort of uh, those pieces you have, especially if you're Seattle and you're carrying, uh, if you're doing a six-man rotation, an eight-man bullpen, well, you better have some interchangeable pieces on the bench. So, uh, Al, sorry, long-winded answer, but yeah, I could see, I could see the possibility where uh, Dylan Moore might get squeezed a little bit on playing time. Now we get uh, two prospects coming up for the Mariners today. It's not just Jared Kelnick; it's also Logan Gilbert, their top pitching prospect on most prospect lists, maybe all prospect lists. I know some people really like George Kirby, but. Logan Gilbert, I mean, we're talking about a guy that has had no issues at all cruising through the minors, and four pitches with command gets you pretty excited anytime you have that in a profile. What have you seen in him? I know you get chances to see him in spring training each year. How much has he really taken a step forward each year, and how ready do you think he is to contribute at this high high level? Yeah, I think he's ready to kind of in that same vein as Kelnick. Um, uh, the minor league track record is very impressive. Um, maybe about 140 innings in the minor leagues. Again, he, I, I figured maybe he would get two, three starts in AAA before they brought him up. But, you know, the Mariners are uh, certainly suffering from a lot of pitching injuries. So I think the timing kind of matched up. But you're absolutely right, Derek. Like, this is a, a, a high-end prospect um, who's gotten better each year since they drafted him in 2008. 18, I'm sorry. Um, he has really elite extension. You know, he's a big guy, and it probably feels like he's standing right on top of you if you're in the box. Uh, plus, right on his fastball, the big curveball, the slider's good. And then last summer, you know, we talk about 2020 being such a lost opportunity for minor league players, and it was. I mean, there's no other way to – you can't sugarcoat that, right? Some guys went to the – alternate site and you got some work done there, but it really is not the same as a full minor league season. Well, uh, Logan Gilbert, very analytically um, minded um, and always kind of looking for an edge to get better. He developed a, a changeup, which as we all know, it can be a field pitch for a lot of guys. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. Uh, some guys never find it. Um, it that's not unusual either, but he, de <laughs> he developed a changeup in Tacoma that is now considered uh, through their metrics to be very close to a plus pitch, which is unheard of over a short period of time to be able to do that. So that's his fourth pitch. It's not a throwaway pitch. It's one that actually gets some very good actions, but he went, he sat down, he looked at other big league pitchers, watched a lot of video guys that throw changeups, what their grip looks like. It kind of shows you the inner workings of how he thinks. So aside from being a, a supremely talented pitcher, um, you know, his, his decisions about how to get better um, and, and the certainly in-game stuff about setting hitters up, uh, you know, very bright guy. So I envision a pretty good future for him. Uh, let's talk about a prospect who 
ostensibly isn't on the verge of being called up, but would be great if he was. And that's Julio Rodriguez. Uh, so he's currently at high A, but uh, doing well early on here, even with uh, an elevated K rate. So what what do you see the timetable as being for him to go to double A and, and perhaps beyond that? Yeah, I think that's inevitable that he's going to spend some time in, uh, in Little Rock uh, where their Mariners double A affiliate is this year. I, I think that... Um, yeah, he's come out of the gate. He's been swinging it very well. Um, I think the sky's the limit for him. And you know, so, somebody asked me, uh, maybe on Twitter, one of the stories about like, hey, you know, maybe there's a chance we see Julio at the end of the season, which seems absolutely ridiculous. Like that, that probably shouldn't happen for the Mariners or for Rodriguez. You know, this is just not where we're at in terms of his development curve. But I've sort of stopped putting any kind of expectations on this kid a long time ago, because he seems to be kind of um, smashing all those as he goes. So um, I would envision he probably gets at least a half season in double A, as long as he continues on this track. And um, if you could do that and you can get quite a bit of plate appearances and innings uh, this summer, uh, I see no reason why he couldn't potentially challenge for an outfield spot in 2022, which I think for Mariner fans, is very exciting. You know, it's funny. Uh, Jared Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez um, formed a very fast friendship in, in the spring of 2019. They roomed together in Charleston um, when that was still the Mariners' low A affiliate. They're completely opposite personality wise, right? Yeah, Kelnick's very focused very driven, bottom line oriented. It doesn't mean that he won't joke around and have fun, but on the other side, um, this is truly baseball's odd couple like Julio Rodriguez. If you've ever seen a photo of him, not smiling, I'm not sure it exists. This guy just exudes happiness and he is generally regarded as just a great teammate. Um, He truly appreciates this opportunity that he has and uh, he's just he's, he has an infectious personality. So I think both those guys, through their relationship, have sort of been good for each other. And someone told me uh, maybe a year or two ago that they thought the best parts of each other were rubbing off on the other guy. So I think, it, you know, uh, I think that's going to help both those guys as we move forward. Yeah, it almost sounds like Kelnick's the kind of guy, if he were to go into a slump, which doesn't seem like it's really happened much at this point in his career, He'd grip the bat tighter, right? Turn the bat into sawdust. Right. And, and Rodriguez is the kind of guy that might call him down and just say, hey, just relax, man. You, you got this. And it's good to have balance like that on a roster. And I think we're all looking forward to seeing those guys playing together at some point, hopefully together within the next year again. Uh, I want to ask you about Kyle Lewis because I feel like he's going to get completely overshadowed just by the high-quality players coming up around him. And he's a nice player in his own right. We saw a step forward in the shortened season. Walked 14% of the time last year. Cut the K rate down just below 30%. He's cut the K rate down early on this season. I know he missed some time with an injury to begin the year, but are you seeing a higher quality plate appearance from Kyle Lewis on a consistent basis here early on in 2021? Yeah, and I think missing those first 17 games, Derek, um, you know, it really messed with his timing um, in terms of when he came back, and it took him a while to get going. But he had a really nice series against the Rangers this past week. And I think he had multi-hit games in each of the three games. And, um, you know, his swing decisions are good. He offers a hitting profile of power to all fields and certainly an understanding that, um, 
you know, unlike a lot of young guys who come up and just want to pull the ball that, you know, he, he could drive the ball to right center. Um, I think, yeah, I think this is going to suit him pretty well because we'll have to see what the lineup kind of looks like when, when Kelnick comes up and how they want to kind of stack these guys at the top, but there may be an opportunity for him to get bumped a little, a little lower, maybe not too low, but maybe, you know, end up getting uh, a little different set of pitches to hit, maybe more fastballs. I think he'll be fine. You know, and it's so funny, you know, he had Derek that monster September in 2019. You remember that when he came up and then certainly last year, American league rookie of the year, but going into this year, he hadn't even played a half a season in the big leagues. And I, I think a lot of people need to understand that, um, with that, we can't truly say definitively what Kyle Lewis is going to be. We still can't today. Uh, the sample size, in, in my opinion, is just not big enough. But I will say that what we have seen has been very encouraging. Um, and, you know, I think he's a much better defender in center field than people give him credit for. And like I said, the ability to hit to all fields, I think he's going to be fine. I don't know. I can't tell you what kind of player he's going to be long term. Um, you know, he's a little bit older, um, but, you know, I, I think he, he fits what this team's doing and where they're going. And I, th- I think he'll be an important part of this franchise. Well, let's talk about Evan White a little bit, because, uh, you know, with Lewis, you, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, changes in, in the performance. But, you know, with Evan White, it looks like it's just sort of being consistently overmatched. And yet when you drill down, I see some encouraging things. He's making much more contact this year. Uh, but what's really holding him back is he's popping up a bunch. He's already popped up seven times, which may not sound like a lot, but you know, given the amount of play appearances he's had, it's it's really depressing his stats. So, uh, do you think that uh, this is you know somebody who is just really deep in a struggle, or maybe that White is on the verge of consolidating some skills and and putting it all together? Yeah, he's such an interesting guy for me, and not just because of the contract he got before he'd ever played in the big leagues, um, you know, the, the the deal the Mariners gave him. But, like, you know, defensively, we know he's a gold glove winner. Uh, but the sample size now is getting pretty big in terms of his, his plate appearances and such. And um, I think last year, one of the things the Mariners kind of hung their hat on was two things. They figured, you know, there was no way in hell this guy was going to have a 42% strikeout rate coming back in 2021. And he has lowered that. And by no means is that easy. Um, It's still running, I believe, around 30 or so. Um, But one of the things that they really thought was a good sign for the future was how hard he hit the ball. When he did make contact, um, the exit rates were, you know, batted ball rates, they were all really good. However, this year, if you look at those numbers this year, they are way, way down. And when you couple that with still a 30% strikeout rate, um, you know, and he's hitting toward the bottom of the order, sure, he'll save you some games defensively over the course of a full season. But, you know, guys, I just, I don't know. I think... I don't think it would be terrible for him to go to AAA, play every day, get his confidence up, um, you know, rediscover something with his swing. I don't know what it is, but I don't think that would be the worst thing for him. And nor do I think it would be a tremendous concession on the Mariners part. Um, These things do happen. Guys do go back to the minor leagues and come back and become better players. So, you know, that we don't have enough time to count how many times that's happened, but it's happened a lot. So 
I don't know. That, that could be something that we end up seeing. I, I, this is just my sort of my guess as I think about this roster construction moving forward. Um, we'll have to see where his place is in it. But so far, the early returns um, have not been great. Yeah, we've seen almost a, a seven mile per hour drop in average exit velocity from Evan White. Barrel rate down from fourteen point one percent last year to three point two percent. So I think you're dead on. I think you know, June may bring a trip to Tacoma for Evan White, and three weeks, four weeks to get right, come back around the fourth of July. Maybe he's up for the rest of the year after that. That would not surprise me at all with that profile being kind of in shambles right now and the little bit of time he spent at AAA in 2018 was that an injury related thing because he jumped from high A to AAA for four games is that what that was all about yeah I think they just needed a body for a weekend yeah that's just a little blip on this page so right. he didn't technically skip AAA but he really didn't go through the normal development process at AAA yeah, so sending him down makes some sense uh, last question for you Corey you know entering the year Many, many of us thought that Rafael Montero had a pretty good hold on the closer role because, you know, we love saves on this show. Uh, but the Mariners have 10 saves already this season. Montero's got four. Kendall Graveman's got four. And Keena Middleton has two. Do you think this committee approach, really where Graveman just works the most important part of the game, is here to stay? And that continues to get Graveman at least a share of the saves that we thought were going to go to Montero. Well... Ideally, that's the way it, it sort of played out in April where they were mixing and matching based on uh, opponent matchups and they call it finding pockets for these guys. Right. But it's just that's what it is. It, it, you're just playing the matchups. Uh, but Montero has been snake bit a little bit um, and been hit hard. Uh, he had a tough outing in uh, Dodger Stadium the other day. Um, I, I seem to think as we move forward now, it's going to be a ton of Kendall Graveman. Guys, I tell you what, I mean, I, I, maybe I'm not watching enough baseball other than the Mariners, but I think he might be one of the top 10 relief pitchers in baseball right now. And maybe it's higher than that. Dig into his numbers. My goodness, he is throwing 98 mile an hour darts. His ball moves like crazy. This is a guy they signed before 2020 to start for them. But he has found a new lease on his professional career pitching out of the bullpen, you know, he'll be a free agent. He might be their biggest trade ship at the deadline at this point. You know, I think if everything had been normal, I, I think that would have been James Paxton. And I think that that's why part of the reason they signed him was that, you know, they could potentially move him at the deadline if he was good and he was healthy. But anyway, I think that guy's now Kendall Graveman, or maybe you extend him. He loves it here. And um, I think he's very thankful and grateful for the, things the Mariners have done to help him, but he is dynamite. So I think the important innings moving forward, they will all belong to Kendall Graveman. I mean, the explosion in velocity for him as a reliever has completely changed the way that we look at that profile, throws the slider more than ever now too. I think that it changes so much about a profile. Like you can shorten up the pitch mix and maybe get rid of your worst pitch and throw your fastball harder. And we've seen it from Drew Pomeranz from the left side in San Francisco a couple of years ago. The way you're describing Graveman kind of reminds me of the way I thought about Zach Britton the first time that the Orioles shifted him out of their mix of starters eight years ago now. It was a long time ago. Once he was throwing out of the pen, it was 97 with sink and guys couldn't hit it. And it's just, this is not the Kendall Graveman that we watched in Oakland for several years. This is a completely different guy. And I would agree with you. He's a great trade chip. You know, what's funny is, you know, I think years ago, maybe not all that long ago, um, uh, but Bud Black 
told me when I was covering the Padres. He goes, you know, uh, relievers, you know, were once viewed as just failed starters. You know, that, that's all that's all they were. But now, certainly with the specialization being so prevalent in the game, I think um, that that has certainly changed. But I think in this case, yeah, it's allowed Graveman to add by subtracting, kicking to the curb some offerings that weren't that great finding a bump in velocity, and then the movement um, has just been outstanding. Corey, we really appreciate your time and your insight today. I hope you enjoy Kelnick Gilbert Day, which is probably the biggest day in Seattle since Fraser Crane Day. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's right up there. It's, uh, you know, it, it, as the Mariners march through this rebuild, this is, um, these are moments today that, that they've been waiting for. These are important moments um, it's one thing to bring up Kyle Lewis. It's one thing to bring up Evan White and, you know, indoctrinate them to the big leagues. But these are two guys. Jared Kelnick was acquired after they went down the rebuild path. Logan Gilbert was drafted in the summer of 2018, but did all, all his player development occurred during this period. So this is a big day for the organization. Now it's just a matter of seeing what these guys can do. No, looking forward to reading your stories about it. you got a lot of great stuff about these players written up already over at The Athletic. If you don't have a subscription already, $3.99 a month gets you in the door, theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. You can follow Corey on Twitter at Corey Brock MLB. Thanks a lot, Corey. Thanks, guys. Love some great stuff from Corey Brock. Always great getting a chance to catch up with him. Definitely a friend of the pod and all of us in the fantasy baseball community. Uh, Al, there's one more leaderboard I wanted to talk about with you because I wrote about Keston Hira kind of by accident in my prospects column for this week. And people are saying, yeah, why'd you write about Keston Hira in a prospects column? Well, okay, it's not a prospects column entirely. It's more just about young players and players going up and down, right? I'm looking at guys who are getting promoted like, Kelnick and Gilbert, and I'm looking at guys who have gone down in the last week. And Keston Hira was sent down to AAA. He's going to start playing games this week. And the thing that I was concerned about looking at the profile for Keston Hira to begin this season is that his zone contact rate is basically the lowest zone contact rate I've ever seen before. 58.1% so far in 2021. It's not a new problem for him. And that's what I was digging into a bit for the piece. Like Even when he was good, when he debuted in 2019 and was barreling up the ball and giving us power and speed and immediately turning himself into a middle-of-the-order contributor, he still was near the bottom of the league. Not at the bottom, but near the bottom of the league in zone contact percentage. But I think it was you know a more tolerable 76.9% that year which you can live with. You can look back at old leaderboards and you'll find good players that had zone contact percentages that were in that range. You don't go back and find guys in the, the low 70 range, especially if you're looking at a multi-year snapshot, which is what I did. I took the last 12 years. I went back to 2010. And the only good player I could find, there was like one who was that bad early in his career, was George Springer. And it just got me thinking, like, okay, so I'm a Brewers fan, obviously. I mean, I'm wearing a Brewers hat today, and I talk about the Brewers all the time. So I, I want Keston Hira to be like George Springer. But when you see a list of other players, guys like Jabari Blash and John Singleton and players that just flamed out quickly, it gives you a lot of pause. So when you see something that's just a an outlier, bad sort of performance on a leaderboard like this, how much panic does that cause you to have about that player? Because this seems 
significant. Being this bad, being historically bad at making contact on pitches in the zone seems like a pretty big problem that has to be corrected. You know, and if it wasn't for the Springer outlier that you mentioned, I think this would be something that would really change my mind because this is not a stat I've looked at for Hira. And it's a stat, as you well know, that I put in uh, put a ton of stock in for both pitchers and hitters. And if I saw a pitcher who had uh, a Z contact rate in you know the seventies and had some other flaw, I would be overlooking that flaw for that pitcher because it's you know it, it's just such a dominant performance. So for a hitter to be on the other side of it, it, it here's somebody that I've just thought, well, I'm just sticking it out because the, the ceiling is so high, and I'm going to stash him till you know till the end of time. So this is giving me a second thought, but I, it also does take me back to when Springer came up and I remember people saying, but the strikeouts, the strikeouts, the strikeouts, you know, is this guy going to be able to hit major league pitching? And there was a real concern there. And so the fact that that's a, that's a path, you know, that this is a problem that Springer has shown it can be overcome. It kind of keeps at least one foot of mine in the, in the stashing circle, you know? Um, but I, it, it definitely gives me, Gives me more pause to consider dropping him. Uh, I've got him in the 12-team Tout Wars, and I, I could use that roster spot. So it's it definitely gives me some pause. Right, and I think the other reason I wanted to write about heroes because I was also making a short list of prospects that I think are worth stashing, mostly in mixed leagues, mixed redraft leagues. And I had the caveat in the piece, you know, I realized most people can't afford to stash more than one player like that because you don't have unlimited bench spots. If you have a normal size bench and you've got some injuries that have piled up, you don't have a lot of IL spots. Maybe you have no IL spots in, in some leagues like the NFBC formats and TGFBI. Those bench spots become precious really fast. And it seemed like most people were comfortable cutting Hira in a 12-teamer if they had to, definitely cutting him in 10-team mixed leagues, really shallow leagues. You can just go back and try and get him later when he comes back up. And in 15-teamers, the attitude was a little more towards like holding for the time being. Part of this, too, is that the Brewers, they're woefully thin offensively. They don't have upper-level minor league prospects ready to come up and take spots over. I mean, they got Dan Vogel back and Billy McKinney at first base. So the, the bar for Hira is really low. And I guess the other thing that really kind of struck me, and it's always been something that I've thought was interesting about Hira as a hitter, he hits the ball everywhere. And I just I can't rectify the idea that a bad hitter or a failed big league hitter would have a spray chart where he hits the ball and with power to every part of the ballpark. I would expect a guy who swings and misses at pitches in the zone that much to be so pull happy and so predictable in where he hits the ball that there would be more flaws there. So I think that also sort of fueled some of my optimism that while we're going to probably have to wait a few weeks for him to get right at AAA that it's not an all-hope-has-been-lost sort of situation. Well, and another important variable here is the second-base eligibility. And in that 12-teamer where I am stashing him, I've had Jerks and Profar filling in for him. Not really ideal in a 12-team league. Uh, so, you know, what what do I have to gain? If I drop him and I need to pick somebody up who can play the same positions, who who am I going to get that's going to be worthwhile? So that that's a part of the calculus, too. Yeah, I think that's really important. And just to add a little more color to the current leaderboard, if you look at players with at least 50 plate appearances so far this year, Hira's got a 58.1% zone contact percentage. Akil Badu is the second worst at 667 That is a huge drop down to Hira. I mean, he is just in his own 
own little corner of the world right now. Uh, but the other players on the the laggard board, if we'll call it that, it's Hira Badu. Randy Arena pops here as third at 66.9%. Nico Goodrum, Cole Calhoun, Joey Gallo, Jacoby Jones, Willie Adames, Michael A. Taylor, and Bobby Dalback. I mean, that is not good company. And we know Joey Gallo's got a lot of swing and miss. And I think he might also provide a glimmer of hope because historically this is an area where he lags too. If you do an exceptional amount of damage on contact, you can get away with having a lower zone contact percentage. You can't get away with what Keston Hira has done to this point. That's why he's at AAA. Uh, but with Randy Arozarena, I didn't expect to find him on this leaderboard when I started digging yesterday. I didn't really write about him in the piece. He's really tough because we had such a small sample of him playing really well late last season and through the postseason. I said this during draft season. He's going to go through an adjustment phase. All young players do. The league starts to figure you out. How quickly you adapt to what they're doing to you determines how good of a player you become and how quickly you become that player. So I think we're just seeing that quantified with Randy Arozarena. But I'd be lying if I said I wasn't just a little bit nervous about him being in that group right now. Yeah, no, it makes me very nervous. And like you, I'm very surprised uh, because... Uh, you know, the one thing that he's been able to help with is batting average, but uh, yeah, no, it definitely confirms every suspicion I have. And I'm sure you and I are not, not alone in that. Yeah. So uh, let us know on Twitter at Derek Van Riper at Al Melky or BB. What is your level of concern? If you have Randy or Rosarena, he's a player that I do not have anywhere this season. I think I'm 0 for 2021. On Randy Arozarena, not because I didn't like him, just because someone else liked him a little more than me and I wasn't positioned in the right spot to get him. In auctions, I wasn't pushing plus one to make sure I got him. And so far, it looks like maybe I made the right choice, even if it wasn't for the firmest of reasons. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Thanks to Corey Brock for joining us on today's show. For El Melchior, I'm Derek Van Riper. We are back with you on Sunday. 